Welcome to They Came From Outer Space, a radio program where we talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film and how it relates to their own work and today's wild world. I'm filmmaker Cameron Kitt, also known here on WIR as DJ Lilas, and you're listening to WIRLP 97.3 FM. I'm here today with Joe Plesha to discuss the 1979 Bond film, Moonraker. From Earth to the most spectacular adventure in space, Moonraker. It's out of this world. What exactly are you up to here, Drax? Moonraker 1, liftoff. An entire city in space. What's up? What's up, Joe? How you doing? I'm good. I got the Shirley Bassey song stuck in my head. Yeah, it's not bad. I mean, it's better than the uh, the Sam Smith one from Spectre, so... I just think it's funny that Bond songs are kind of their own genre of song. They really are. Yeah, they kind of have like their own like uh, almost like scale, you know? They're um, kind of operatic. Yeah. Where are you? <laughs> Why do you? Yeah, um, I'm super excited because I, I just finished watching it. This is the, the second time I've seen it. When but was those, the first time you saw it? I was like 14. Yeah, that's been a while since I've seen it, too. I remember because I was in my parents' garage, like, watching it on that TV. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's a different memory. What about you? When did you see it for the first uh, time? I saw it when I was a kid, um, and then I re- I obviously watched it again for uh, for these purposes. So Yeah. So I- I'm excited to hear what stood out to you this time. For those who don't know Joe Plesha, he's a filmmaker from New York whose short film, Stu Nods, recently won Best Action Short at Genre Blast, which is where we met. Joe earned yeah. his bachelor's in TV. Woo! His bachelor's in TV and film from Hofstra University in 2015. After an internship with Magnolia Pictures, he went on to work for MTV as a cinematographer and content producer. He's now directed over five what we filmmakers call legit shorts. And today he's working on a spy novel and another short about a kid running away from home on his big wheel. So, wow, that makes, me so, that makes me sound so much more legit than I actually am. You are pretty legit. You got award-winning shorts out here. You I'm know? trying. I'm trying. But like off the cuff. What okay. made you choose Moonraker? Um, it's kind of like one of the first sci-fi movies I think I ever watched. I guess if you could consider it sci-fi, because really the only last thirty minutes of it or so is actual sci-fi. But um, you know, uh, I've always been a huge fan of the Bond movies, so it's like I was like, well, maybe if we if we do a Bond movie, we could do Moonraker because it's kind of like this this one outlier in like the whole franchise and people think it's like you know it's a goofball you know it it was a complete misstep and it is to some degree but I think it was also like I think the filmmakers were very aware at the time of what they were doing um like I don't think they were going to make another sequel where like they were going to go to space and they were going to be like this I think they they were kind of conscious of what they were doing um, because if you if you know the little bit of the history, like the Spy Who Loved Me was the movie that directly preceded this, and at the end, it was supposed to be Four Your Eyes Only, which was going to be the next Bond movie, and then Star Wars came out the same year as Spy Who Loved Me, which I think came out a little bit after, and then there was obviously the whole sci-fi craze, the late seventies. You know, there's a bunch of rip-off movies, so the Bond producers kind of, I guess, were like, "Well, we got to cash in on this. We have a book that's you know kind of space related. Let's you know do that." So I think, you know, there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek that kind of gets overlooked in the movie, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's a serious Bond adventure by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think they were going for that. Um, so it's it's a fun little movie, you know? 
It's not little though. It's ginormous. Well, it's very overblown, yes, but uh, yeah, it's it's still got some really good stunts in it too. I mean, oh, the opening sequence is like is it's, it's pretty yeah. crazy. It's considered the best stunt in all the Bond franchises, even after even with the Daniel Craig. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they're the, they're doing it for real. They're they're jumping out of a plane, and it was the first sequence I think where they actually you know tried to hide the parachutes. You can see it on the blue right now because you know. Uh, it's I can see clear, the sea now. <laughs> yeah, and you could see all the the process shots in the studio where they just like put the little close ups of Roger Moore and Richard Keel in there. Uh, um, but yeah, but so. knowing that it was bumped up because of Star Wars makes the movie make a lot more sense because now it's James Bond does Star Wars, and yet yeah. it works for me. It completely works for me because Ian Fleming, like you said, had already written a book. That's, I guess, somewhat similar. From all the stuff I've read, they're like, there's only like three things that are still retained from the original book. In the yeah, movie. most of the novels don't have any play in the, yeah. uh, the movies. They're, but They're different, yeah. But the franchise, I feel like, has always been very reactive. You know, like, I feel like the, the Bond movies always adapt to what's, you know, it takes pieces of what's popular at the time and kind of, like, spins its own narrative on it. So, like... You know, You Only Live Twice kind of cashed in on the big, like, there was, like, a Japanese spy craze in, like, the late 60s. They kind of cashed in on that. Diamonds Are Forever had, like, the mafia and the Vegas mob mentality in the early 70s. And I feel like this, you know, is just another thing. The Bond movies do well, is they kind of just, you know, take what's popular and put Bond in that, so... One of the, I watched a BBC news report from 1979, and the reporter called the Bond franchise a license to print money which i thought was kind of rude but i guess you have to realize that like we didn't have marvel back then like that i guess this was like the closest thing to a continuous franchise that was always successful yeah yeah i mean there's a lot of there was a lot of money i think in the movies that didn't really wasn't really in any other franchise at the time like tourism was big Mm -hmm. with them you know Mm -hmm. like them globe trotting like Mm -hmm. keep in mind we didn't have like you know, travel vlogs at the time. Like this was the only way people could see. You know, you could you couldn't see Rio de Janeiro unless so you true. you know. It's so true because it is like it is like your. I didn't actually think about the the tourism aspect because of course they're there during Carnival, right? Like, yeah. Then they go to the ruins. Like there's you're seeing all, you get the cable car, you get these beautiful vistas. Of course, then there's some punches. Well, I want to read a little bit about the summary, but first I, I just want to ask you, Joe, like why. Th- is the Bond franchise important to you? Like, what's the impact there for you as a filmmaker? I think it's just, it's the culmination of everything that's great about movies. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's the filmmaking aspect. Obviously, there's like every kind of special effects, every kind of uh, specialty casting, every, every kind of like trope that's in like an adventure movie is in these movies. And I watched them when I was very young. Which I think mm-hmm. if you watch something when you're when you're very young, yep. you have like a an immediate attachment to it for the rest mm-hmm. of your life. You know, a lot of the stuff that inspires me as a filmmaker is the stuff I watched when I was a kid. Yeah. So you know, I think that's the nostalgia element is very big. But um, but yeah, just like the whole filmmaking aspect of it is it's so like over the top and incredible, and you know, like the miniatures, the the set design, the casting, the beautiful women, you know, the whole attitude and he you know he's like he's like the ultimate uh male uh 
fantasy. You know yeah, what I mean? Like I he's what say, you like, want to be as like a little kid, you know? And he lives in a fantasy world that is the ultimate male fantasy, right? Yes, because like exactly. he's beautiful women, cultured. action, you know what cool I mean? Tech, traveling, like exactly. he, he's cultured, he speaks Portuguese, you know what I mean? He just has everything. Um, yeah. That's so true. Um, so I think as a little kid watching mm-hmm. that, you know, and especially because my parents were like, these movies are too, well, not this one, but like, you know. The this Pierce movie Bosnian is rated PG. Did you know that? This yes. is a PG film. Dr. Goodhead is PG. <laughs> it's for kids. Holly was a warm girl with the right connections. Could this possibly be the moment for us to pool our resources? We would be better off working together. Uh, That's my first bullet point is all caps. It just says, Holly Goodhead, Dr. Goodhead, question yep. mark. You know, when I was like four, uh, Dr. Goodhead kind of went right over my head. You know, I didn't even really went right realize. over your good head. <laughs> it went over my good head. Yeah. So I, I was like, I don't get it. What's so funny about Dr. Goodhead? You know, but like as, I, as a kid, I watched Austin Powers before I ever watched any James Bond movies. I, I watched my first James Bond movie when I was in my preteen. So, oh, yeah, I didn't. Sometimes they're like it. comparable. You know? Yeah. Like, it's like I think there is a character whose name is Pussy Galore in the franchise. You know, like that's yeah. like a thing in the Bond franchise. Yeah, I there think is. there is. Yeah, in Goldfinger, in Goldfinger <laughs> it's, it's Pussy Galore. There's so many like ridiculous names, like Xenia on the top. Uh, I think it's just nice that, I, and I don't know if that comes from Ian Fleming alone or if that's a kind of a mixture of the entire producer unit. But like, well, Pussy Galore of, is definitely in the books. Yeah, you know, but they've continued the. Uh, well, I don't know about modern tradition. With of... the Craig movies, they're trying to ground it a little bit more, and I don't, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't agree with that. I think oh, it's we're hilarious. We're going to talk about that. We were going to talk about that, but let's get into a little bit of a summary. If you've never seen Moonraker, it's not a problem. We are going to spoil everything in this movie, but it is not going to spoil the experience that you will have watching it because yeah, some studies way. show that you know knowing the plot of this movie, a, light, a little bit of light spoilage actually can increase your enjoyment. So. Released in 1979, Moonraker was directed by Lewis Gilbert, who is Oscar-nominated from Alfie. Uh, the screenplay was adapted by Christopher Wood. It is the fourth Roger Moore Bond film out of all seven of his. In this movie, we follow 007 on the hunt for a missing hijacked space shuttle named Moonraker that leads him to a Tesla-like California facility of a mega-billionaire named Hugo Drax and down the rabbit hole of fights, dark guns, women's panties, and Venetian boat car hybrids. To stop the evil Drax from taking over all of space and, I guess, eliminating the entire human race, Bond must go where no double O has gone before. To space. And you better believe that there's some zero-G sex. My god, what's Bond doing? I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. a great summary. Zero GPG sex is like something you can only get from the year 1979, I feel I like. titillated already. <laughs> All right. So so you, you kind of led with a question that I want to get to because it's on my mind is I'm watching the Roger Moore era, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. How does this movie compare to the Daniel Craig era to you? Oh, it doesn't. There's not even a, a, a shred of of this in the Craig. Well, you know what? It's weird because I have a very uh, uh, mixed reception with the Craig era. Everyone thinks he's, you know, the man and, and he's too, it's too brooding for me. You know, it's too much. Uh, and they do Batman, you know, they did. They, they kind of ripped off Batman. It's, even with mm. Skyfall. And I love Skyfall. Skyfall mm. is great, but like they, they definitely ripped a lot of that off from the dark Knight. So, 
you're right. It's very Dark Knight. Um, mm, interesting. And it makes sense. You know, it's like I said, the Bond movies are very reactive to what, you know, the culture is at the time. Mm. So, you know, mm. the new the new Craig movies take a lot of the Nolan influences. And for a while, they were thinking that Nolan was going to direct. Uh, he may still do it. He may still direct, you know, the next Bond movie. Who knows? But um, for a while, there was a lot of talks of, of bringing him on. Um, to do it, and it makes a lot of sense. But um, you know, the Roger Moore era is, for better or for worse, um, you know, everyone's kind of got their spin on it, you know. And he's he kind of brought the goofball charm element, which I'm not so much a fan of. I'm a big you know Connery guy, um, but Roger Moore brought that like levity to the character that I think was missing. You know, Connery always had like the one-liners and stuff, but. Um, Roger Moore had this more tongue-in-cheek element to it, and I think for the time it was um, it was kind of desired, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And then obviously they brought it back down with with Dalton and stuff, but um, you know this was like the last one where he really, where Roger Moore really kind of went full goofball with it, um, and then they brought him back down. But I, I prefer to watch this one over like the ones he did in the eighties, you know, like A View to a Kill is horrible. It's a terrible movie. Yeah, this movie, you know? I have to say, I was surprised by how well it worked. Right? Yeah. I think I, I mean, mean, it's the Roger Moore era gets the short end of the stick in the kind of franchise. And this movie, I mean, it, it it's strong. Like, it's not strong in some areas, of course, but like, it's surprisingly pretty cohesive. You know? Yeah. They, it feels a little bit like they're dancing around the sci fi element, you know? Like, they like don't want to do it. It almost feels like the film like doesn't want to go to space. Do you, do you get that feeling? It's like, oh, I okay, definitely, I gotta, yeah, I can see. You got to go to space where all the budget is. They go full go. ridiculous. Once you, once he gets to like, I think the film kind of like finally embraces it when he gets to the Q lab after the cable car fight and there's a monk with a, a laser. <laughs> you know? I think that's the thing is like, okay, so something that. Louis Gilbert, the director, said is, you know, a Bond, Bond is just a huge entertainment. It isn't a normal film. It's not a great drama. You go see a Bond picture as a form of escapism. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's pretty much nails it, you know? I mean, this was his third movie, directing it. He did Spy Who Loved Me, mm-hmm. which if you really pay attention, The Spy Who Loved Me is basically the same exact movie. Well, Moonraker is the same exact movie as Spy Who Loved Me, almost beat for beat. Yeah, like you know exactly what's going to happen. There's fi- there's like the three to five girls. There's the five different locations. There's like, you know what I mean? Like there's like yeah, these beats. The, I mean, for years it was, the, it was, you went to a bomb movie and you didn't need any predecessor information. <laughs> you just went. You watched it and you enjoyed it and then that was it. And then you waited two years and you saw it again. And that's, I think there's something so like beautiful about that. You know, they're trying to do the MCU thing now, which, okay, I get it. But like, there was something like so nice about just going to a movie and enjoying the movie for what it is, Mm -hmm. as opposed to like having to, you know, watch everything before that. And the movies are two and a half to three hours now. And you know, say I mean that's fun, I guess, but I don't know, man. Like, I think two hours in and out is like the way to go. We've had conversations about this, like eighty-minute movies are like the way to go. But um, you know, yeah. with a Bond movie, there's a lot of money involved. It's a big story. There's a lot of holes to plug in the plot, so I get it. It needs the weight of you know a two and a half hours, but I don't know, man. I don't yeah, know. there's there's something to be said for the levity of the experience like what this is providing is a different thing than some of the movies today it almost feels like we're trying to return to opera like movies were an alternative to opera 
in the early Ooh. days that were like for the masses. It was like for the poor. And now it's like we're returning to the grandiosity of the experience of going to the opera. Like you have to like settle in and plan your bathroom breaks. Like they, they we're going to have to start having intermissions now with the movie length. Do you know what I mean? Like that was what yeah. this movie. I, like So I think that leads me a little bit. So like talk about Stu Nods, your idea for it and like where that film lies in this relationship to having fun, like what you're trying to make the viewer experience. I mean, I'm trying to bring, I guess, I don't want to sound like I'm a working class hero here, but like, uh, <laughs> you know, like just, I think you're right with the, with the whole operatic um, thing. And a lot of people are into that. Obviously comic book movies are becoming like the norm. Uh, yeah. They're like the, you know, blockbuster movies nowadays, which is fine. I get it. You know, they're not really my cup of tea, but, um, you know, I get it, but there's so much emphasis on like seriousness and like how, you know, serious the movie has to be. And it's like, it's not going to be believable. And it's like, I don't, you know, I don't understand where this mentality came from, you know, where everything has to be, you know, dead serious all the time you know like there's a guy that turns into a green monster why do we have to make that make sense like yeah people are like oh we gotta ground this i'm like dude no you don't (laughs) this movie is so deeply ungrounded like moonraker is like the furthest from the ground of all the the films it's of course yeah it's in it's literally in space you know what i'm saying but like (laughs) <laughs> there's you know the closest thing to this is the fast and the furious movies which i think they even they have their like their the family element is like cringe to me oh my you gosh know, I, how dare you yeah how family is the most important thing family can't be cringe it's impossible well when vin diesel's saying it i cringe family. to be honest great drinking yeah. game by the way anytime someone yeah. says the word family it's a fun yeah, one. That's a good way to just black out on us. I, I love the Fast and Furious films. I think it's the same reason I love the Bond films. And it's the same reason I like going to the theme park is like, I like to release from my life and have fun. Like you sure. take a moment to live in a fantasy world. I'll um, give them credit. I'll give them credit for not taking themselves seriously at all. You know, because mm-hmm, a lot mm-hmm. of franchises can't even do that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, there's a few that I actually did like. I watched Furious 7 when I was very hungover. Um, and I liked it a lot, um, you know, but they, there's just, there's too much CGI. There's too much, you know, there's not a lot of, I think the Mission Impossible movies are doing a better job of uh, actually having fun than the Bond movies, believe it or not. And I hate to say that because I used to always think that the Mission Impossibles were always just a cheap knockoff of an American knockoff of like Bond. But I think as of recently, like I've had more fun sitting there watching Tom Cruise do these, like, ridiculous things. Well, it's because of Simon Pegg, though, and because of the comic relief that makes it fun. Yeah. There's a lot of levity in those movies. Exactly. You need both. You need both. Yeah, you really do. And I I think, I forgot where I I saw it. Um, I think they were talking about, I think it was actually Craig saying it, which is hilarious because in these movies he rarely did it, but he was saying, like, the one-liners have to be... uh, implemented in a way where it's just it's just following something that's like white knuckle you know something crazy just happened and then someone says a one-liner and everyone's like you know laughs or it's a sigh of relief you know that kind of that kind of has to be integral without the the white knuckle stuff the one-liner doesn't have any effects so true they're kind of they're kind of necessary and for me like you know i have so many notes on like the feminist theories that I have like the feminist film uh, lens looking at this, but like, because the movie is so absurd, it doesn't really bother me. Like it's funny. Do you know what I mean? Like, because I know it's not directly intentional. 
like there's the part where like within meeting like i think the fastest is like somewhere within 30 seconds of meeting a woman he's like undoing the lace of her little chemise and like that's absurd right like the absurdity of like the entirety of it like the scene where he falls into the lake with the anaconda and like they spend like a full two minutes with every entrance of each woman and it's just so it's so funny like they know that that's funny do you know what i mean (laughs) yeah well here here's another thing that i i think is kind of it's weird because the new one came out and then this was the one that was like it's bond for the me too era and stuff like that and i've always kind of felt that like i don't think the bond movies have ever really put women down in a way like you know, femme fatales have always been a thing in the Bond movies, and I think they've always portrayed women as pretty competent, right? I think. Well, and this movie is supposed to portray itself as pretty competent. Well, so like, for me watching it, I have so many notes. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, so many things that just make me laugh that are so absurd. But I think they thought this was, like, a pretty feminist version at the, at the time. Like, for me, I was like, this is a movie from 1979, and, like, she's literally 20 years younger than him. Ew. But, like, yeah, it's literally. not weird. It's not weird for them. Like, he's 52 in this movie. She's 32. I think it was, I think this was just about right before he started to look old. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he's you know on what the I'm cusp. Like he, he's, he's on the he's, cusp. He's on the cusp. He's still like, he's still got charm. You know what I'm well, saying? I mean, like he's still a charming fantasy, guy. Though. That's all part of the fantasy, Joe, is like he can still do it just like any young guy. He can jump in any car. It doesn't matter, of you know? Course. But of for course. her to be a doctor, like she's a astronaut, I guess, and she is immune to his charm. In the interview with Lewis Childs, like she's like, I appreciate that she doesn't fall for it immediately. And like, and for me, every fight scene she's participating, all these things are important, right? Like they were making yeah. an effort. Um, Ian Fleming obviously wrote the male fantasy. And so like, you can't knock it for being like the male fantasy. There's always the three to five appetizer women who just like are apparently murdered right after he has sex with them. <laughs> well, I mean, you got to take it for what it is. I was you like, know is, what I'm this a sim- like... is this symbolism? Like, is this an analogy for like STDs or something? Like, what? I don't understand why are they disposable? Anyway overall overall like it's still fun because of the levity i think like overall it never feels it never feels intentionally sexist it just feels kind of like a bond movie it can get away with it james i think it may be time to go home take me around the world one more time why not you're listening to they came from outer space a sci-fi movie review show here on wir my name is cameron Pitt. I'm talking to Joe Presha about the 1979 Bond film Moonraker, starring Roger Moore. So, I mean, I think the, I think a lot of what, I don't know, it, it, with No Time to Die, okay, like I, I thought it was really bad, I, but that's its own. Uh, we could have a whole discussion about how bad i thought it was but um i think that the whole marketing aspect of no time to die was like oh it's bond for the me too movement it's you know there's like gonna be competent women in it and i was like i think there's always been competent women in the bond movies you know and i think that i don't think no time to die is any different for that you know but you're I mean? also saying that like the whole point of the franchise is to adapt to what the audience wants to see so why are they sure. wrong for doing that I don't, I'm not saying that they're wrong for doing it. I'm just saying that it's, it just seems like it's it's making a point to do that. But why would you make a point to do that if it's already been in there? You know what I'm it's, saying? It's the same to me. That's like similar to Ian Fleming getting mad about them saying that they want Idris Elba to be the new Bond, and he was like, "No." <laughs> Ian Fleming? 
Yeah. 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 dead, yo. I know, but like this was before he died. He died what when he was like it was he, like he died five in years 64. ago. No, he died in sixty four. And who was against it? Someone okay, you're bad, bad Cameron. What, what Someone was really against Idris Elba playing it. Maybe it was one of the previous Bond. But yeah, I, like I'm not against here's what I think like whoever plays Bond. I think, I mean, it's a male fantasy, so I think a man should play it. I mean, I'm sorry, Cameron. I'm killing you right now. No, 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 it's fine. Um, I want to talk, though, we're getting a little far away. Like, we are talking about the role of women in these films, but, like, I need you to give me a quick synopsis of Stunauts. This is a your film that just won an award, probably has won others. Like, tell me a little bit about it, and then maybe tell me about the female character you have in that. Okay. Uh, yeah, so basically the Stunauts is a... Short film I did um, based on a feature that I, I want to eventually make, but um, it's about a group of Staten Island punks in a punk band in their 20s, and they basically decide to steal a school bus to go on their own DIY tour. Um, so it's based heavily on uh, my friends that I grew up with. Um, and yeah, I have a female lead in it who plays the guitar player. She's kind of an amalgamation of a bunch of chicks I know in the scene, I guess. And, uh, yeah, she's kind of like a, a little firecracker, I guess. Um, and she kind of spurs uh, the main character, Richie, who's uh, sleeping with the bus driver's daughter, which mm. is his neighbor, who right. is yelling at them constantly for practicing in their garage and it's disturbing right. his uh, TV time. So, right. Um, yeah, so they decide to uh, steal a school bus to go on and tour. You said that I think you said that it was a, it's a comedian who plays the character. What's her name in the short? Uh, Shannon. Uh-huh. Yeah, her name is is uh, Rita in the short. Uh, so, Shannon. Yeah. yeah, she's a the fir- the two guys in it. The two main guys in the band are my like long long term friends. My friend Pete, I grew up with, and my friend Eric, I met at film school. And then uh, you know I was originally going to cast everybody, but I was like, you know what, like. These are these characters are based on you, so why don't you just give it a shot? And then, you know, they they killed it. So I was like, uh, all right, well, you'll just be in it. And then we hired we you know we looked at a bunch of different women to do uh, Rita because I really wanted her to be, you know, like this bubbly, crazy, you know, uh, you know, I guess guitar player slash you know sexual cowboy type <laughs> character, you know, punk, the cool punk girl. Exactly. Who, who like who like is down? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I like I like. And it's hard. A lot. It's really hard to cast for that, to be honest. Like to to really try and you really got to get someone who like knows that mm. scene and how crazy that scene is sometimes. So how did you cast Rita again? Uh, yeah, we just held we held the casting at um. There was a place we used all the time that closed because of COVID, unfortunately, but um. You know, we put a bunch of ads out on uh, Backstage and uh, a couple other sites that I can't remember the names of, but um, we had a lot of people come in. We had like 30 people come in, and uh, you know, I, there was a girl, uh, Nastasha, who's in this band, Jigsaw Youth, that I actually, I asked her to come in and read for it, and uh, she'd never acted in anything before, and uh, you know, she was down. She, you know, we didn't go with her at the end of the day, because um, Shannon came in and just basically, we, we pretty much decided like right then and there. Because Pete was with me at the time. Pete was already casted as Richie. And I was like, well, I want you to read with her. You know, I want you guys. I had them do a whole bunch of stuff. 
Right. Uh, you know, they read lines, and then I was like, okay, well, now, uh, you know, there's the whole scene where they're stealing the keys for the bus uh, in the movie. So I, I hid the keys in the room, and I was like, all right, now act like you two just got into a fight. And That's then, so you know, cute. Yeah. Improv. And then they, I was like, yeah, exactly. I was like, go look for it. And Shannon's an improv actress, so she's like incredible. You know, she's off the cuff, just coming up with stuff. So we were like, you know, we were pretty much blown away. And uh, we were like, we want you. So. So how much of the actual film is improv and how much is from the script? I would say there's, well, what we actually did is we, I sat them down before we shot and there's a couple of one takes in the movie where it's just dialogue. Like the movie's very edit heavy uh, for most of it. And then there's like two shots mainly there's one on the park bench where it's all a one take and it's all three of them you know riffing it's a wide shot and i was like basically they're the edits in the scene it's like one's going another one's going um so i had i sat them down and i explained that to them and uh i was like all right so you guys just got to constantly be one-upping each other here and uh we went through it like 10 or 15 times and then they killed it and we we nailed it in like i think it took us like seven or eight takes and we did one punch in, and then that was it. Wow. And then um, we kind of went to script for the most part. You know, there was a couple line changes. And then we got to the ADR sessions, which is where we really started, you know, ad-libbing yeah. stuff. For those who are listening on the radio or podcast, explain what ADR is. So yeah. ADR is um, basically after the film has been, uh, you know, pretty much shot, you're, you know, either going to fill in lines, like let's say the audio was you know, terrible on location, or, you know, you want to add something in in an action scene or something like that, you're basically, you know, talking into a mic and either recreating those lines or adding lines. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's a necessary process, but um, we each, you know, we got each of them in there and we watched the film through three or four times. And uh, I basically just said, like, there's a couple lines we want to get, you know, we want to have to fill in here because I was still editing the chase sequence. And I wanted, you know, because they're in the bus, three of them, and they're all like, you know, screaming, going chaotic. So I wanted to really capture that as the action scene's going on. So I was like, just do whatever you want. Like, let's see what works, you know? Mm -hmm. And we sat there for like an hour and a half each. And, you know, they just threw a bunch of stuff in. And Eric had a ball with it. Uh, and a lot of the stuff that he uh, did in the, in the ADR session is in there. So... It's interesting that you say it's necessary because it's something I resisted and really didn't want to do and ended up not doing. I think it hurt my sound quality a lot, obviously, but I just really? like I was like, oh, it's going to cost so much money. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I, right? I lucked out. Well, I kind of, we kind of, you know, uh, we kind of jerry-rigged the, uh, the process because it wasn't, it wasn't done in the studio. My friend Pete, he's also a recording engineer, so he does uh -huh. a lot of basement stuff, so I mean, a lot of it was just throwing a blanket over them and, you know, oh, giving great. them the, a monitor and they, but, they just did it there. But good sound is necessary for how we perceive the quality of a film. And, and so it, it sounds like you're is. able to work some extra fun lines in there. Now, there's a extended chase sequence with the van and people jumping on and in and out of this moving bus. I call it mm -hmm. a van. That's rude. Um so it makes me think of stunts in relation to this movie. Like this movie is known from the bomb sequence of having like the most famous stunt, the opening stunt. Enjoy your flight. 
like, tell me, how did you direct the stunts, especially when it comes to potential danger on set with a moving vehicle? Oh yeah, well, there's a lot of there was a lot of illegal things involved. <laughs> um, there, there's no way there's no way about it. Um, well, that that's that's another thing I forgot to mention with the Bond movies is it's just a stunt to me. In a, like, if you're making anything that's even remotely you know involves action, and most movies involve action, there's got to be you know some stunt work. You know, mm-hmm. it's showmanship, and yeah. I'm a big I love I do love showmanship. Yes. So, um, and I grew up watching basically you know these polished james bond movies and it was the same time that jackass came out mm-hmm. you know in the early 2000s mm-hmm. so i was going from you know seeing these like super big budget studio flicks and then i'm turning that off and, and watching jackass on mtv which is shot with like dv cam and yeah. it's just kids in their backyards doing yeah. It was a weird mix, but like that's the both of those have directly, it, you it know, kind of correlated. Yeah, yeah, have kind of correlated and outcomes the stunats, you know. But um, directing it was like I got in over my head for sure. I, I you know, I'd never directed a, an actual legit stunt sequence before, and uh, you know, I storyboarded heavily. Um, and we were originally not going to be able allowed to drive the bus because Eric didn't have a commercial license, and they, you know, the company that we rented the bus from was like, we don't want to do it. Um, so, and it was shot in New Jersey at my at my aunt's house. So we get there on set that day, and there's you know there's a woman driving the bus. She's there. Um, so for like half the day, we're we're doing the, the backyard stuff, them running through the backyard, through the house, and all that stuff. Then we get to the bus. So. Um, you know, I, I told her, yeah, you know, she's sitting in the bus. I'm like, it's going to be hot out. Like, you don't got to sit in there. Like, come sit in the backyard. So, I, I, you know, I'm talking to my friend Eric, who's this big, large, you know, if you've seen the movie, he's this big, large kid. I'm like, I'm like, dude, just talk to her. Give her whatever she wants, you know, get mm-hmm. her some drinks, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, not alcoholic drinks, but, you know, mm-hmm. just like take care of her. And then mm-hmm. we'll see if we can get you in there to drive the bus mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And sure enough, Eric worked his magic. And uh, we were able to to drive it. She had to be there, but we shot around that, obviously. So, like, my storyboards kind of got thrown out because I was going to yeah. fake it. Um, yeah. But we had two cameras, which helped. You know, my friend Buley also had the same exact camera I had. So I said, bring it. We had one on the Ronin. We had one handheld. So while I'm inside shooting the three of them, he's outside shooting the chase. Oh, so. yeah, you did your own cinematography. That's an extra layer of challenge yeah. well, too. sometimes yeah for the stunt sequences i want it to be involved yeah you needed to do it now the, the most memorable part is when is it richie is the main character who's running mm-hmm. yep. towards the bus and jumps onto the bus i was like wow it like it you know obviously movie magic adds a lot but mm-hmm. it, it was impressive like were there any close calls with that shot oh yeah 100%. Um, <laughs> i can't go maybe it helps much. maybe it helps that it was one of your best friends doing it i can't go yeah 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 well, did I you have to look him that. in the eyes and say please for me <laughs> well i said i said pete like are you down to and he's like yeah like absolutely like me and pete have done you know some pretty crazy stuff before so i was like well it's gonna be on film and it's gonna get submitted to festivals and you're gonna be a movie star bro like so just nice. you know get hyped and he was like all right yeah like he's down and, uh, you know, it's – Eric was driving. My dad was also on set, and he was, like, helping us, you know, yeah. uh, DIY close-off streets because we didn't actually close-off streets. <laughs> but, um, 
know, I had I had two guys at the end of the street with walkie talkies, and I was like, all right, well, don't let anyone in, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, luckily, I mean, he Eric hit a car, <laughs> but um, it, it wasn't it wasn't bad. So, I mean, um, it's this is what happens in indie filmmaking. Like, there's kind of two different ways you can go. You can go the super safe route where you're getting all your permits and you have the safety coordinator and you have the stuff, or you can do the thing where you don't have the budget for that. And kind of the Werner Herzog school of like, yeah, let's steal absolutely. shots, let's go for it, let's make this film. Like, how passionate are you? And I think it really comes through. Um, I should point out that we were we were very safe. It's sounding like we just were, you know, buck wild and just went. <laughs> uh, we did have the cops called on us, um, so I had to sweet talk my way out of that. Um, it wasn't even for the bus. It was because uh, Mike, who plays um, uh, Vicky's dad in the movie. Uh, was running and chasing Pete down the street with a baseball bat. Oh, and people it was thought... a rubber baseball bat. People yeah. were like, oh, they thought it was a domestic dispute. Yeah, that happened. So, like, we're explaining to the cops. That happened. Like, yeah, they're like, yeah, we, we heard that they're, you know, I'm like, look, it's a rubber bat. Like, we're just filming a movie. And they laughed and they were like, oh, it's whatever. It's fine. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, this is why you need, you know, it, why it costs more to do movies because you do have to su- shut down a whole area and give people all this awareness. Um Wow, it's awesome. Yeah. It's I think I mean you and I talked about this, but like action's underrated, especially in the genre films. Like they're like when I talked to Nathan from Genre Blast and uh, you know Chad, they're always wanting and, and hurting for action. Like yeah, horror is way easier to make. Sci-fi, I guess, isn't easier, but like action seems to have. I think it's the challenge, right? This perceived challenge of like we have these images in our mind of these stunts, like the like the stunt we're about to talk about, and it just seems mm-hmm. so impossible right to, to like all right well how do i start small and even achieve something i think like the energy of yours is fun it's like the whole time there's so much movement so you can still capture a lot of the goodness with baby steps even if it means uh i guess for you in your case brushing the, get up against the law um it kind of makes it yeah. better though i mean when you watch it there's no way to feel like it wouldn't have happened is there a way that people can watch it online uh, not yet. It's still it's still, still on the circuit. festival circuit, gotcha. but it's gonna be online soon. So uh, they can follow me on Instagram at jrockoplesha, and uh, there'll be updates. So, but uh, right. but yeah, it's, it's gonna be on there soon. So I'm gonna read this description of the opening sequence. I'm I'm a big fan of Point Break. You seen that movie? That's my favorite movie. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> it's like one of my favorites, and that's that has like some of the most blissful parachute like skydiving footage I've ever seen. And then I saw this and uh, it's not blissful. It's in quite the opposite, actually. You know, I mean, like Point Break kind of owes that that ending uh-huh. sequence to, to Moonraker. I was like, sure. wait a second. I like you don't realize this stuff until you watch it. I mean, Point Break is about the excitement of it. This one is about the action of it. But OK, except for a few brief close ups, the entire sequence of Bond, Jaws and the pilot falling from the plane with Bond and the pilot fighting for a single parachute was shot in free fall. The seven-pound camera for these sequences was mounted on the helmet of another skydiver. This is pre-GoPro era. This is shot with film. <laughs> so the lightest they could get it was seven pounds attached to the head. That's like the weight of your head on top of your head. Um, a few shots are of the cameraman's own arms and legs. The parachute which over which they fought was actually just a dummy shoot and was removed so that the stuntman could actually use the real parachute underneath. Stuntman Jake Lombard would don and remove the dummy shoot up to three times in a single jump. Um... After factoring in the time needed to get the performers and cameraman into position, only a few seconds of film could be shot per jump. Therefore, the entire sequence required 88 jumps and five weeks to film for just two minutes. Yeah. 
sounds that sounds about right. I mean, it stands the test of time, as far as I'm concerned. So, would you do it? Would you jump as the cameraman? Yeah, you know what? I, if I if I was experienced enough in it, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm down to do. I'm not going to ask anybody to do something in a movie that I direct that I wouldn't do myself. Hmm, you know? that's a good rule. Yeah. The problem is, I like would do pretty much anything. <laughs> Problem is, yeah, like well, yeah, I, I mean, I would uh, go for it. I'm kind of like, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm down to be the stunt man, man. Um, you know, yeah, I think I so. would be too. I, I really respect stuntmen and women, and I think we're there starting needs to, to be get an Oscar category for that. That truly I does. Know. I think with YouTube, with like the rise of like stunt people getting their own pages and like talking more about what goes into it. Now that we have this understanding of like how much it goes into it, like the yeah. strain you're putting it's on crazy. your body day in and day out, like the like effort, it is an art form that. <laughs> I think it's underplayed how many how many of them die or get injured really badly. You know. Why do you uh, think that is for insurance or for? Well, I think the studios want to sell their movie, so you know. But it's it's also, um, yeah, I think that's what it is. I think it's underplayed because you know no one really wants to know that going to see the movie. But I don't know. You know. Didn't I mean it's not like a, he wasn't a stuntman, but Heath Ledger's death had a huge impact on the Dark Knight's ticket sales. Yeah. Well, it's he's a he's a celebrity, so it's yeah, kind you're of right. Impossible. If, if stuntmen kind of were celebrities, gonna... the only stunt person celebrity I know of is Zoe Bell. I know there's other ones. I mean, like people who yeah. are. I guess the guy who directed John Wick, he was a stunt coordinator. But anyway, yeah, stunts, action, stunts. James Bond and the treacherous Doctor Goodhead. Despite your efforts, my finely wrought dream approaches its fulfillment. You're listening to They Came from Outer Space, the sci-fi movie review show. My name is Cameron Kitt. I'm here with Joe Pressure talking about the 1979 Bond film, Moonraker. Eric, got him. Take the first landing. Intruders have docked at Satellite 7, sir. Double the guard at every entrance in this satellite. Report intruders' progress throughout the space station. Number three globe ready for launching, sir. Proceed. All right. Joe, what came to mind watching this movie again? It just brought back a lot of memories and a lot of uh, a lot of memories playing Goldeneye 007 on the on those missions. But uh, Classic. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just like watching any other Bond movie. It's comfort food to me at this point. You know, I've seen them so many times, um, and each one's got its own little you know special flavors. Um, but yeah, I just think the I think the production design is is just really is really what, what shines through the most yes. in this movie. You know, yes. it's, it's really just beautiful. The whole movie is beautiful to look at. So The sets are massive. Like, this was, for the Bond franchise, this was the most expensive movie by so long. And this is, again, I now that I realize it was because of Star Wars that they knew that they could spend this money. But yeah. it was $34 million, which is more than the cost of all eight previous initial Bond films. Like, that sounds... Dr. No, like the entire budget of Dr. No cost as much as just the title sequence. (laughs) Like That's crazy. (laughs) I was actually, I was watching something on the special effects and they were saying that they couldn't go with, they wanted to go with industrial light and sound, I think, which which is what worked on Star Wars, but they were too booked up at the time because it was already, you know, two years after the first one came out. And I think they were, they were shooting Empire at the time, but, um, they they had to do something where like all the space stuff they had to shoot you know a plate and then crank the camera back and shoot again and for each you know object 
they had to expose, you know, they had to do basically double, triple, quadruple exposures uh, to get all those those shots of uh, this. There's like the giant space battle at the end. So for each guy that's in there that's shooting oh. a laser, they had to they they expose. Wow, because yeah. there's a scene where it's like maybe forty little teeny men are being released from each side. That's wild. Yeah, that was all uh, exposure, it, like its own exposure. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that's what they said. But uh, but yeah, they were saying that mm-hmm. it was incredibly stressful for them because if you know if they screwed up once, you know the whole frame is you got to put and do it again. I know that's the same way they shot that really famous scene at the opening of Blade Runner, where it's like kind of the ziggurat with all of the flames shooting up. It was the same thing where it's like every element, the camera was was a separate exposure. So like trying to like make this as simple as possible for people who aren't in film, like the camera was on a computer controlled at the time. I I guess they had something, you know, path where it would move forward and backwards, but they had to like open and close the camera. I I just, Uh, it doesn't really make sense to me because we take so much for granted. Like the well, yeah, concept. That's, all, that's <laughs> yeah. all digital now. But there's something about it that's just like Blade Runner. I mean, Blade Runner to me looks more realistic now than any sci fi movie, oh, even the sequel. It, it looks absolutely. more tactile and uh, realistic to me than any other movie I've seen. Yeah. Try to do the same. You know? Our brain can still tell the difference. I think we over. Ex- ex- I think that's part of the reason why we find the Marvel movies kind of so disinteresting is like. I just I'm brought too much out of it. Like the the CGI often is just so distracting for me. Obviously, it's, it's like kind of like watching the Marvel movies is kind of like watching it with like a Krispy Kreme glaze over everything. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, it's fantasy, but I think the best CGI is something that adds to what is already there instead of creating or replacing something completely. Right? Like the best CGI is like yeah. adding val- adding value to something you've already shot, or you know, enhancing what's already there. That that tends to work. Like if you're adding more stars to the sky. That's fine, right? That doesn't bother me. Yeah, no, no one would notice that. Yeah. It's um, yeah, the Marvel movies—they are what they are, you know. Um, it's no Moonraker, I'll tell you what. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, when it comes to any Marvel movie or Moonraker, I'm watching Moonraker. It's just what it is, you know. That's just my taste, I guess. Now, this is a sci-fi podcast. I actually found the sci-fi element of the plot pretty intriguing. It's not something you see as often. Is like the yeah. eugenic. I really wish they had played up the eugenics aspect because in the original novel, you know, Drax was actually a Nazi, right? Like, so there is like this really hard element of like master race. They they hint at it in the movie when everyone who's brought up on the spaceship is white. I'm like, hmm, master race, interesting. Like they don't they do a lot of show don't tell in this movie, right? Like they don't yeah. say, oh, they're dying of nerve gas. They just show the scientists going. Oh, oh, oh. You know, like you. Well, I think they were trying to they were trying to keep it a little bit fun and light, and didn't really mm-hmm. want to go into Nazism per se. But uh, no, I, I totally. I mean, in in uh, in the novel, I'm sure it's probably. I mean, it's that was still to... very prescient at the time it was written. So, but you know, sure. this is a. I I personally, as someone who's like a big pro NASA, pro space exploration person, and wanting to look forward, I found this um, period of time where we were very anti-space capitalism, you know, everyone was getting really mad at the billionaires right, going to space. I think it's a distraction or like puts us on the wrong foot, but golly gee, this movie is like exactly that, right? It's about the problem with space billionaires is our it's big fear. It's kind of crazy how prophetic it is. <laughs> I know, it's like being 40 years old. You when know? she's flying over the facilities in California, I'm like, is that Tesla? Like, <laughs> is yeah, that that's, that's kind of what's crazy about the, 
the Bond movies that don't get they don't get a lot of credit for calling out stuff way before you know it happens in reality. Obviously, this with the space billionaires. Not that I'm not saying that you know uh, Jeff Bezos is going to tear gas Earth. But I mean, he might. Who knows? He might. uh, I wouldn't put it past him. He He might try it. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't. If we wouldn't know until it's too late. But uh, that's actually something where I wouldn't mind a more realistic, hard, scary thing. Is because like I think that is something to be worried about, right? Is like when we have people who have that kind of level of power, that's scary, right? If you're at a level of power where you're contending with world governments, that's really actually like a good plot for a movie because. That's what I think movies, especially sci-fi, are good for. Is like we need space to think about what could happen, what we want the world to look like. like could this happen? Is that realistic? Yeah. This movie is really not trying to be realistic. It never does. Not at, not at any point does it try to be realistic. No. I mean, like the, the no. lead bad guy bites through cables with his mouth. And guess who's dropped in for a bite? Jaws is back. And I was like, why? Like it doesn't. <laughs> Because he's got crazy. Teeth. He's got those teeth. His name is Jaws. Um, yeah, and he finds love. What did like, you think of the Jaws love story? Uh, I thought it was great. You seen, did, did you see Spy Who Loved Me or no? Yeah. Like he, he okay, obviously everyone everyone loves him. What's his name? Um, Richard Keel. Everyone loves Keel, Richard yeah. Keel. Like he, they couldn't not bring him back. Uh, like I love that they like didn't definitively kill him off, right? Um, yeah, like they're like, oh, he'll still make it on that broken piece of space station. I'm like, uh, <laughs> it goes spinning off really fast, like out of Earth's orbit. I love it. Yeah, they'll make it. Like, so for me, the introduction to him when he's wearing this big clown costume is so beautiful. Like, that's a great cinematography, great filmmaking to me because, like, he's scary. He's, like, embodying fear. And then when he finds love, it's this kind of, like, clownish looking woman. But in the original design or in the book, it was he he finds love with a woman who's, like, even bigger than him. And I love that idea. When I was, when I was, like, four, I was like, why is he going out with a teenager? (laughs) Like, I thought that woman was, like, was, like, 15. Those pigtails, like, they like, worked on that, you. That, even as a kid, you knew that was weird. Yeah, even as a kid, you knew it was weird. Well, I mean, she's supposed to be like 25 in it, I think. But like, she just looks like way too young. And they like, did code her kind of young. But to me, when I read it, I was reading Clown. So yeah, maybe. And yeah. trust me, I'm the like, you know, feminist, the sexist police over here. And I would get, but so like, it didn't, it didn't ring any bells for me. But I guess as a four-year-old, you were like, she's too young for him. I mean... Jaws has a tender heart, you know? I think that's a great plot yeah. point. But um, listen, Joe, we're coming towards the end. What are some takeaways from Moonraker for people who are looking to make low-budget films? You know, this is like the opposite of a low-budget film, right? Like, what are some things that this movie does well that filmmakers you can learn from? You should go to space in your low-budget movie. No, <laughs> no. no. I think there's, there's, certain, there's certain aspects to take away from it, um, depending on what you want to make, of course. Um, you know, I think this movie is a lot of uh, it's a lot of money thrown around, but just keep the keep the plot fun. You know, keep it. I don't. I'm not gonna say keep it light. If you want to make a depressing drama, go for it. But uh, I don't know. I think there's a lot of that in the world right now, and I think we could use something a little bit more positive, a little bit more fun. You know. Um, so yeah, that's my takeaway. You know, really. It's like, um, don't be afraid to make fun art. Like, art doesn't yeah, have to yeah. be sad or intense. It's, it's a really hot take. Like, it's like so just rare. Being positive, being positive doesn't mean that your movie doesn't carry any less weight. 
You know what I'm saying? Or I feel like deal that's with the important vibe themes. Now. Yeah. 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 You can still deal with important themes in a positive light. You know what I mean? Mm. Like not everything has to be the second season of True Detective. You know what I'm saying? Like This is where you and I are completely aligned. I think, especially right now, like ever since COVID started, my appreciation for comedy has just skyrocketed. Like humor is so hard. And even you don't even have to be humorous to be light or more fun. But like even just the word light, light versus heavy, it it, it kind of like seems to have this connotation that it's not as valuable. Right. That's what people I think that people really think that I think that I think the media also kind of like makes it seem that way, you know, because it's like the best comedy and then there's best drama, but the best drama is the one that could... It's All like, the Oscars. No, really. That's a really good yeah. point. Yeah. It's kind of like, no, I think a comedy could be better. I mean, more people are going to watch a comedy than a drama, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, you box know? office... The box office always has something very different to say about what movies are good than the Oscars, you know? Of course. And I've always found but that in really terms interesting. Of just people, in terms of just people seeing it, I think pe- most people want to watch comedy. They don't want to watch a drama. That's what I think. That's kind of a blanket assumption. I think it just depends on where you are in your life or what kind of person sure. you are, right? But sure. your takeaway is like, it's okay to have a Roger Moore character. It's maybe it's okay to have fun with your film. Like there were so many parts of this movie where I was just like, like kind of like giggling out loud along with it. Oh, like cool. while it happens, like just like the scene where they're on the space station and Jaws just like yanks a piece of metal off the space station to use as a, like an impromptu weapon. Like, oh yeah just delightful you know yeah of course and i think like also like if you're afraid of being offensive don't be you know what i mean Mm. i mean people might be offended but Mm. oh well you know i mean i think you know the movie itself um kind of has fun with the the whole issue of sex and you know women in spy movies and stuff like that we are not going to end on that you do not get the last word on that. (laughs) what what am i saying i'm I'm just saying what i'm hearing is if you are concerned about what other people are going to think go with your gut is that right yeah like if that's something you really want to make and you think it's going to be good and funny it's something you want to watch obviously there are limits right like we know there are certain limits but i think young filmmakers and like budget filmmakers fall prey to what other people want to see or what other people tell them to do. And that's advice that Nathan gave on this podcast. It really like stuck me. He's like, don't compromise. Like people are going to tell you to do your thing differently. Don't. Yes. That's a more eloquent, eloquently way of putting it. Well, no, it's different from saying, don't be afraid of being offensive. I'll be real. I'm afraid of being offensive in my films. It scares me. I don't want to be offensive. Well, what scares you about it? Uh, The idea of backlash, right? The idea of like being dragged in public. That's scary. Well, I don't think you'd put anything in there that would be, you know, I don't know, out of the realm of, uh, you know, out of I the realm. Know. Of, you know. But that's interesting, though, because like I think you run that risk regardless. You run you know that risk I mean? whenever you make talk art. About, yeah. I think if you're talking about difficult themes or something, depending on what movie you want to make, of course. But like, if you're going to talk about difficult themes, you run the risk of, of uh, you're going to offend somebody. There's no question about it. You know, mm-hmm. someone's going to be pissed. So. People, yeah, nobody, no, not everybody's going to love your art, no matter what. Um, And I'm really excited to see how somehow there's something offensive in this movie about a kid on a big wheel. And I can't wait to see more. Oh, yeah, there's there's already, there's already moments where I'm like, that's great. I can't wait, but we'll we'll see. (laughs) Well, Um, Joe, thank you so much for coming on. Where can we follow you? Do your, uh, you can follow me on my Instagram, 
This is the only social media I have. And when it eventually runs out, uh, I will not be on social media anymore. Uh, at J Rocco Plesha, J R O C C O P L E S C I A. Um, and yeah, look out for the Stunas. It'll be online soon. Sweet. Thank you so much. You've been listening to They Came from Outer Space here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM. And we were talking about Moonraker. Joe, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Heartbroken, Mr. Drax. Allow me. Take a giant step for mankind.